Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. I'm not sure how many of you have uh, what we might call a life verse. Is there a verse in the scripture that you are particularly drawn to that uh, you have felt sort of uh, encapsulates uh, your, the heart of your faith, your thoughts toward God? Uh, back when I was in college, I uh, bought a brand new Bible. I went to the Zondervan bookstore in Grand Rapids, bought myself a brand new uh, King James Schofield reference Bible to replace my confirmation Bible. And I, uh, I, I chose in the back uh, to place a verse from Galatians um, as, as, a life, as a life verse that uh, I, I, would, I should not boast but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God forbid that I should boast in anything but the Lord, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I showed that to my fiancée at the time, uh, Teresa Hansen. And she said, that's nice, but you misspelled Galatians. <laughs> and unfortunately, it was written in ink, so it still is misspelled in that Bible. It's somewhere in my shelf. Let me ask you this. If you were tasked with the responsibility, a brand new church is starting, brand new church, and you are part of the leadership team of this brand new church. And it was your job to work with the leaders of this church and to write your statement of faith, doctrinal statement. It is important. You will find that churches, denominations, Christian ministries, organizations, mission organizations generally have a statement of faith. And in that statement of faith, you will find um, the larger statements that all evangelical um, fundamental Christians agree upon, like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, uh, heaven and hell, the resurrection, things like this. And then you may find some specific doctrines that are particular to those various groups and so forth. You are tasked to write this statement of faith. And I want you to think for a moment, if you had to choose a particular passage of Scripture that summarizes your statement of faith, or that is going to be the lead-in or introduction, will be the first one that people read when they want to know, what is this church church that I'm going to participate in? What does it believe? What scripture would you use to introduce your statement of faith so that people would get a, a, a sense, an overall sense, of what your church believes? What scripture would you use? Make sure you spell it right if you do it. In 1964, the Briam Bible Church was founded, and uh, we began, and we had a statement of faith. And a uh, group of men met to begin the process of putting together our church statement of faith, our doctrinal statement. And the, we have the purpose of our church. You might have a hard time reading that. I just I, I just made a uh, scan to copy. You really have a hard time reading because part of this the margins are cut off too. 
But our our purpose of our church is to proclaim the word of God in accordance with the doctrinal statement of this Constitution, to lead souls to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, to develop the spiritual life and strengthen the the Christian character of the believer, and to give financial aid to and promote interest in missionary enterprises both at home and in the foreign fields. Those are the purposes that our church was founded on. And I appreciate the fact that Salvation of souls, training people in the, in, the, in, the, in the things of God, and missionary endeavors was a part of a group that started with, with nothing. You know, our pastor used to say uh, we didn't even take, you know, it used to be a saying that our church started with only a paper clip. Well, the actual statement that Pastor Peterson, we didn't take even a paper clip <laughs> when, we, when we began our church. We started with nothing and, 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 and no resources but what the people were willing to bring to the table to begin this work, to build these facilities uh, two years later. And this was our purpose. But our statement of faith, we have an, uh, an 18-point doctrinal statement. But I want you to notice that our statement of faith, the passage of Scripture that we picked, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all and through all and in you all. But to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And this, before we listed in our doctrinal statement, the introduction statement, that we affirm that the sevenfold unity of this passage is the Holy Spirit's doctrinal statement for the church, which is the body of Christ. You might have thought there maybe were other passages that might have been chosen as the uh, main the main passage for our church. But in fact, the passage that was chosen to put it all together, that everything would fit under, had to do with the unity, the unity of the Holy Spirit that believers are to share from Ephesians chapter 4. This is our reason to be. This is our statement of faith. This is what our founders believed uh, so wholeheartedly in as the essence of who we are as a church. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Now, we are reading, and the reason it just so happens that this was our reading from Thursday this week, As we have mentioned each week, we are encouraging you to read through the New Testament with us. There are Bible reading, a a yellow folded Bible reading chart that are in the narthex. And uh, you could read uh, that passage each each day, three to four minutes, one chapter a day, five days a week, and you will read through the New Testament. And so we are uh, basing our sermon series uh, through this summer on these passages. And because the Grace Gospel Fellowship... Uh, their theme this year has to do with encouraging us to, to, to read, to know, and to live God's Word. And the conference will be held here. We have over 200 people registered already for the conference. They'll be here in early July. We encourage you to register as well and join us. And since that was the theme and we're hosting the conference, we thought this would be appropriate for us to do this. And it just so happens our passage this week, one of our passages was Ephesians chapter 4, upon which our church was founded. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, may our hearts be 
sensitive and tender to your word. Might we hear your word? Might you help us to uh, just take away some of the other things that are in our mind today as, as important as they are and just allow us to just focus on your word, to contemplate it, to apply it, to grow and to know you uh, greater through your word this morning. So bless these few moments now in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, if you were reading through Ephesians, one of the things you will notice, and another uh, one of Paul's writings is very similar, is the book of Romans. When you read through Ephesians, you will notice that the, the first three chapters are very, what we might say, doctrinal in the sense that there are very uh, many important biblical truths that Paul lists in those first three chapters. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 help us to apply those truths, apply those important principles to our lives. I want to be a little careful that you don't cut it too fine, the dichotomy, but you'll find this also in Romans, where 1 through 9, if you read the book of Romans, Chapters 1 through 9, there are many, many important doctrinal principles that you will learn. And then you come to chapter 12, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And he talks about the gifts, about the unity, about obeying civil authority, you know, about um, helping one another, living. So this application of it. And when you come to Ephesians chapter 4, as you're reading through Ephesians, just to help you understand this, in chapters 1 to 3, there is really only one imperative. You know what an imperative verb is? An imperative verb is do this. Get in the car. Fasten your seatbelt. Okay? That's an imperative. Uh, it's not a suggestion. It's, it's something that's very strongly stated. And when you come to the book of Ephesians, there's only one imperative in the first three chapters. But when you come to the chapters 4, chapters 5, and chapters 6 you will find 40, no less than 40, imperatives where Paul says, now do this, do this, do this, be this, think this, act this. And so we see in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says this, as a prisoner, he's a prisoner in Rome, for the Lord, then I urge you, I urge you, it's a strong word, I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I think uh, Gary, last week when he spoke, mentioned this word, this, this Greek word, peripateo, which has to do of, of in the, I think in the King James, is, is to walk, walk worthy. And the word walk is used because that's really the literal Greek word, and it implies the idea of you know, walking around, meaning to, to walk, to do what you know, to live that way, to walk in those things. You know, we, we use the term walk the, walk the talk, right? The idea. And so this word, this is a very important word for Paul, and you'll find it in his epistles, and you'll find it particularly it controls this section of Ephesians. Now walk this way. You've learned these things. I've told you these things. Now walk this way. Walk, away, walk in a way that is worthy of being called by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've sung songs this morning praising our Lord, praising our God, being reminded of the, what He has done for us. To think that God has called us to be His family, to be His own, to be His children. Think of that high calling. And Paul says, now walk like that. Walk worthy 
of how you have been called. And I want to notice this morning, particularly, the three, uh, the, the three applications of this, the three qu- character qualities that Paul wants us as believers to have. And I want to focus especially on one this morning. But I want you to notice verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he lists those seven unities, those seven ones that our doctrinal statement says that we affirm as a doctrine for our church. But he says, make every effort. Again, it's a strong word. It's not just a suggestion. He's Make all, make every effort to do these things. To keep the unity of the Spirit. And I want to suggest you as we read these, you know, so often when we read the New Testament, because partly because of our culture, we're so individualistic that we always look at everything and apply it individually. That, that Paul is talking to me, and Paul is talking to you, and Paul is talking to each Ephesian believer. And yes, that is true. He is talking to me. He is talking to you. He is talking to every man, woman, and child in Ephesus. But he is also talking to the church, the body of Christ. He is talking to the group. And especially in light of chapters 1 to 3. So when you read this and Paul says, I urge you, I want you to think in terms of the group, not just individually, but this is something as a body as a group that Paul wants them to do. And he's going to give them three qualities that help keep the unity of the Spirit. You notice the unity of the Spirit is already there. We don't create it. We, don't, we haven't done anything to create the unity of the Spirit. As people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells within. Yesterday in our men's Bible study, our group, our small group, we were um, discussing the from Exodus, and, and, the, and the details about the tabernacle, and of course later the temple, and the, the details about the sacrifice, the, the, the system, all, everything that you know, we've read about the curtains and the rings and the ark and the measure, all this detail, because, because God is holy and He wanted them to understand how, what a gulf sin has created and to come to Him prepared And yet the Bible tells us that we are a temple today of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple. I am a temple. And we collectively, right here in this room today, the Holy Spirit reside. We we call this our church sanctuary. Sometimes it's referred to as the auditorium. We generally refer to the sanctuary, not in the sense that it's like the temple, that, you know, when, when we leave here today, that God stays here and we come and meet Him here every Sunday. That's not what it is. But it is a sanctuary in the sense that when we gather as God's people, the Holy Spirit is here today. God is here present with us today. Amen? God is present here today. God Himself is present in each of us and in us collectively. Walk worthy of that calling that God has given you. And Paul says... I want you to make every effort, not to make this unity, but to keep the unity. God has created it. God has given us the Spirit. But we could hamper it. I'm not sure I would say we could destroy it because God made it. It's in God's hands. 
But Paul does say, do not grieve, do not quench the Holy Spirit, do not put the Holy Spirit's fire out. And by how we act, how we treat one another, how we do or don't do the things that Paul tells us to do, we can hamper that unity. We can bring disunity. And that's why the founders of our church, I believe, focused on this passage because we needed the unity of the Holy Spirit maintained if we were going to build a strong, successful ministry that would reach not only this community but around the world as we were, out, as we were able to witness the last weeks when we were in Southeast Asia and to see the result. We've been involved in that ministry since the very beginning and to think of what a part our church has had in people that you will never meet coming to know Christ as Savior. Here's what Paul asks of us together and individually. First of all, Paul says this in verse 2, Be completely humble. Be completely humble. And I want you to notice the word complete. Your translation may use the word all or every. We are to be humble. This is an interesting word. It's a very long word in the Greek language. Tapenophrosune. It's a long word. The interesting thing about this word that's translated humble, humbleness of mind, this word really does not appear much or if at all in Greek literature and language before the New Testament times. It's a word that was kind of uniquely applied and used by Christianity and then became more prevalent in the first century because of the Christian church. The reason it was not used in the, I mean, the root word was there in the Greek language, but the reason it was not not used is because it would have been an anti-virtue. It would not have been something that, that you wanted in your life. This would have been a surprise to the Gentile readers of the book of Ephesians, those people sitting in the church of Ephesus who come from a strong Gentile Greek background would have been surprised at the prominence of this word because it was not something that Greeks aspired to because it meant servility, lowliness, and it was something you did not want to be. you got to remember in this world, Many, many scholars estimate up to a third of the people were some type of slaves or servants. If the church at Ephesus got together, let's say it was this many people, I don't know how many there were, but if it was, a third of you, one third of you, one out of every three, three could be a slave or a servant. It was not something you, you aspired to, it was something you wanted to move away from. And to use this word to be a servant would have been a little bit offensive to Greeks and to Gentiles. But the Christian church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the writers of the Gospels and the writers of the Epistles, uniquely applied this word to the church. And I want to tell you today, I want to suggest to you, this is a very strong, controlling character quality that we as Christians are supposed to have. We are supposed to look at ourselves as servants. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our model. He was the servant leader. I mean, you think about it. We're going to have an election here this fall. And you think about the people you're going to vote for. Think about the kind of leaders you would like to have in office, in your city, in your county, in your state, and in your nation. Wouldn't you like to have people who saw themselves as servant leaders? 
You know, the idea of public servants, that they are here to lead, but they are here to serve and to lead through serving. Isn't that what you want from your pastors and leaders and elders in this church? Do you want us to lord it over you as pastors? Don't you dare challenge us. Don't you dare question us. Uh, you're here to serve us. Or is a healthy church one where the pastors and the staff and the elders are here to serve you? And that's the idea. And I want to encourage you today, friend, to do your part to keep the unity of the Spirit in this local assembly, in this Christian community, in the larger Christian community, that what we are called here in Puget Sound, in our Grace Fellowship, those we are connected with around the world, that we are called to be servants and to have lowliness of mind that we don't put ourselves first, that we don't think of ourselves more higher than we ought to think. You know, it is a, it is a, a human characteristic. Um, even secular research has borne this out, that most humans tend to think much higher than themselves than they should. I know we, oftentimes we think about that that's not true, but actually we have that tendency to think of ourselves much more higher and that we're much more better than we really are. And Paul says... Have a, have, a, have a mind that you are here to serve. You are here to serve, to be humble. Keep the unity of the Spirit. I want you to notice the second thing. The second one that Paul says, we are to be completely gentle. Gentle. Now, this is one that was a positive quality. This is one the Greeks did hold up. Uh, one of the authors said, uh, a, a person who is gentle is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Now think about your life. Think about the times you've gotten angry. Think about the things you've said that you wish you hadn't said or the things you wrote in email or the things you wrote in uh, social networking um, that you wish you hadn't have said. Can I give you a little piece of advice, a little pastoral guidance in your job and so on? Uh, never write anything in an email that, that you wouldn't want published. Assume it will be published, okay? Uh, be careful. Uh, people are writing things and saying things that afterward they, they, they can't get back. And once it's out there, it's out there. And, 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 and Paul says that, that we are to be gentle. We are, when, when you get angry, when you get upset, are you angry, upset at the right time? Have you ever been angry, upset at the wrong time? This is one characteristic of a gentle person. Don't you like gentle people? Don't you like to work and live with gentle people? I'm not talking about people who are weak. I'm not talking about people who have no backbone or have no strength or have no purpose or have no direction. You know what I'm talking about. You like to be around people who are kind and gentle, who treat people well, who treat, who treat people as God would have us to treat them. And this is another word that is quite common in the New Testament. In fact, one of my favorite passages as a pastor and as a leader, Christian leader, 2 Timothy chapter 2.25, where Paul tells Timothy one of the last pieces of advice he gives him before he dies. And he says, Timothy, even with those who oppose you, these were, some of these were false teachers that were trying to cause trouble for Timothy, he says, gently correct them. Perhaps God will lead them into the right path. And I think as Christian leaders, as pastors, as teachers, that this should be our attitude. We can, it's so easy to get angry and mad at people. It's so, it's so easy to get hard with people. But Paul says, Timothy, be gentle. It's God's work 
You just teach the truth. You just teach what's right. Correct them gently, but correct them, and God will bring it to pass. Last night, I was at the symphony, and they played uh, Mozart's uh, Requiem. And in that uh, Requiem, there is a phrase you'll hear quite often in sacred music. And a lot of the Requiems, P.A. Yesu Domine, Gentle Lord Jesus. Gentle Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, for I am, I am meek. I am gentle of heart. I will take your loads. I will give you rest. Yes, He is the God of the universe. He is the, he is the righteous judge. And He will come in justice and in judgment to bring judgment on the earth. But He is also the gentle Lord Jesus Christ. You want to help maintain the unity, the unity of the Spirit in this assembly, in your family, in your community of of believers that you're associated with? God has called us to be humble. God has called us to be gentle and kind. And you know what? Sometimes when we talk about these things, I know some people say, well, that's that's just not me. I'm just not that way. Well, too bad. It's an imperative. Paul didn't say, well, if it works out for you, be gentle. If not, I understand. <laughs> really, I'm not trying to be mean to you or anything, you know. But, but because I need, anything I preach to you, I'm, you understand. You know me well enough. I'm preaching to myself first. It doesn't matter if you feel like it or don't think that's you. Be gentle. Be a servant. Be humble. The third one, why don't you look at this morning, Paul says, be patient. And this phrase goes with the next phrase. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing, lasting long, be patient. Macrothumia, the Greek word, be patient. Now, I want to show you this morning... The reason we are to be patient. If you look over at chapter 5, verse 1, which you might have read on Friday. And I love this passage. In fact, I almost use this at every wedding I perform because, perform, that I officiate at. <laughs> that, because I think if a, if a couple builds their life around this, I don't know how you can go wrong. If you're both willing to do this. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and what? Gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How could you go wrong? How could you go wrong if that's how you lived with another person? Be an imitator of God. That's an imperative. You are to be an imitator of God. And the the reason I wanted to point this out as we go back to this word patience, is that this whole spirit and understanding of patience comes from God Himself first. We see this in our God. We are to be imitators of God and apply this to our lives. God is the example. A couple of passages. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. This is the passage where God, where Moses asked to see God. 
And God says, you, you can't see me and live. And nobody sees God and lives. But I will put you in the, in the cleft of a rock and I will pass by and you will see my, the backside. You will see the shadow, something go by. As he go, and as God goes by, he proclaims to Moses who he is. And he says, as he passed in front of Moses, and Moses did live, of course, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this idea of, of this abounding, this abounding, this, the, word, the word faithfulness, abounding, this Greek word for patience is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament here. God is patient. And, and he says to Moses, he says, I'm, I'm going by and I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm patient. And believe me, as you read, this, if you read the accounts of, of God's people in the Old Testament, they needed God's patience. How many times did they try God's patience and wear his patience so thin? But God was patient. And God says, I will maintain love to thousands. I forgive their wickedness. But there will be judgment. It won't be forever. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning. But in the meantime, I am a patient, loving, gracious God. And this is the whole basis of our understanding of patience. God is patient. Second Peter chapter 3. And this is the passage that where, we, where it says, do not, do not misunderstand for those who say, you know, things go on as always. Where is God? I thought Jesus was coming back. And Peter says, hey, wait a minute. Don't forget, to God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. We're a little over 2,000 years since the time of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and we're still waiting for his return. But Peter says, but for God, it's like two days. Today is Sunday. It's like Friday till now. For God. And he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, and here's our word, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our God is patient. You know, you think of the, you know, I, I love the study of history. I, I read almost all my extra reading I do, it has, it's usually history or biographies. You don't have to read too far. Just read the news. Our own community. What happened here a mile from our church? A young lady just murdered in cold blood. Right here in our neighborhood. The wickedness and the sinfulness of humanity. When we think of the... We were in Southeast Asia and reflecting on what happened in under Pol Pot in Cambodia. Now we have missionaries in Cambodia from TCM. We think of what, when, how, how millions. We think throughout this last century, the last century, I mean, how many, what, 100 million in World War II that were, people were killed, mostly civilians. The wickedness and the sinfulness and the darkness that God is patient. He's patient. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Read the book of Revelation. But in the meantime, God is patient. Why? 
His desire is that no one should perish, but that all should come to salvation. Every day that goes by, every day that goes by, Ben reminded us when we spoke at our conference, how many thousands of people pass from death to spiritual life every day in this world, especially in the third world and in Southeast Asia and in Africa and in Latin America, where the gospel is moving ahead so fast in places where it could never go, every day of God's patience is thousands of people coming to Christ. He is patient. He is patient. Last verse, Romans 2.4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We ought to praise God that we have a God who is patient. He waits. He bears. He's long-suffering. And, and, and I think that the most important, the one that says it all for the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Friends, our model for being a patient person, be imitators of God, is God is patient with His own, with humanity. And it's leading to repentance and salvation. It's leading in your life to you are saved. It's leading to your growth, your walk, your maturity. God is patient. And so I want to encourage you today to do your part to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How patient has God been with you? Huh? How patient has God been with me? To come up here and have the privilege of, of preaching God's Word to you, and yet to realize in my humanity I have no right to do this. You have no right to be called by God, to be part of His family. How patient has God been with you? I ask you that. How patient has God been with you? And God has asked us to be patient with one another, forbearing in love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter? The first quality ascribed to love when Paul begins to describe love after he says, if I speak with the sound of you know, eloquent words and so on, love is patient. First quality listed. Love is patient. Don't tell me you love somebody if you're not willing to be patient with them. Now, God has asked us to forbear and be patient with one another. Last week, Gary preached to us from Galatians, which is our reading last week, about helping lift up one another, bearing each other's burdens. We all have our faults. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our challenges. We all have our difficulties. 
I'm not talking about willful, sinful behavior. Somebody who's, whose heart is just cold and resistant to God's, what God obviously wants for them and is hurting others. That's not what I'm talking about. Our patience with that is not acceptance and, condo- and, con- and, and to condone it and to make it easy. That's where what we talk about tough love has to come in, and we know that. But I'm talking about the everyday relationship that God has called. You know what? We have our differences. Think of this church in Ephesus. The first part of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul describes what God is doing. He's doing something brand new. He's taking Jew and Gentile, and he's putting them together as the new people of God, apart from the Mosaic law, pagans and religious, scrupulous Jews, and put them together into an assembly like this. Can you imagine the patience that was needed on the behalf of those strict Jews to put up with these people who were utterly pagan in their background? And for these pagan Gentiles to look at these fellow Jews with all the trappings and the, and the law and the kosher and everything else and say, what is this about? How do we... In the book of Acts, Peter wouldn't even go to a Gentile's house until God forced him to. It was that serious. And it's in this context of this church at Ephesus, Jew and Gentile together, whole new world, whole new relationship. Walk through the door, the master and the slave are now equal. They walk out the door and they're master and slave. Male and female in different different roles in that culture. Jew and Gentile. Paul says, you come together, you're one. And you are to have unity of the Spirit. And you are to be patient. And we have our differences. Differences between believers are to be tolerated. We're not talking about ethical and moral issues. But our differences. How can you practice this patience? What can you do? What can you do? What can I do to help maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit through our patience and forbearing? I remind you, first of all, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. You don't create fruit. You cultivate it so it can grow. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you did not create the fruit, but you can help create the environment and cultivate through your time in God's Word, through your honest assessment and prayer about yourself and about others. And of your service to allow that fruit of the Spirit to grow. Are you willing to put the unity of the Spirit first and yourself second? Are you willing to do this in your own home, in your own family, in your neighborhood? You have Christians. You are part of a larger Christian community. You probably work with Christians. You go to school with Christians. There are Christians in your neighborhood. People look at you and know you are believers. You may have doctrinal differences, but they know you're believers. You're witness. Are you willing to put the unity of the Spirit first and yourself second and be an imitator of God and be patient? Are you willing to be patient with that person who is less than perfect? Are you willing to be patient? Are you willing to be like God? You know, probably for each of us, God has put somebody in your life who is very difficult to be patient with. 
could be a coworker, fellow student, neighbor, somebody in your family, extended family, somebody in your church family, that you have to admit, I, I just have no patience for that person. We are, we are so different. Our differences are so great. But I ask you today, friends, are you willing to be an imitator of God? God may have put you in someone else's life, and they're having a hard time being patient with you or with me because we are all less than perfect. I'm not talking about willful disobedience, but I am talking about our differences. You know what I'm talking about. What will you do this week with that person in your life to show patience and to be like God and to take the long view of things and to help build the unity of the Spirit so when somebody comes to these doors and, 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 and comes to fellowship with us, maybe a non-believer who, who comes into this place and says, you know, there's something different here. There's a love and a compassion here that's genuine. It's different. These people love each other. As Jesus said, all will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. They are patient with one another. They are gentle with one another. They are gentle and kind and humble with their family members and those people that are difficult. When I was a young boy, my father died, and one of the last things I did, I remember doing with him before this together, we went up to the Grand Theater in Greenwood. Now it's a Taproot Theater. You've been to Taproot Theater? It used to be called the Grand Theater. That's where I saw those Elvis Presley movies I told you about that I know you all can't believe I did, but I did. <clears throat> I went up there with my dad to see the movie Hannibal, the real Hannibal. <laughs> Hannibal was the, uh, the, the leader from Carthage. Who It was a wonderful story. My dad liked the story, and so I went with him, and after he died, I remember buying the books I could and comic books and everything about Hannibal because... I'd seen that with my dad, and I was quite taken with that. And Hannibal crossed the mountains. You remember what he did? He took those elephants. Remember that story? And they showed up in Rome to fight the Romans. And, you know, elephants show up at your door, and that's kind of impressive, you know. And they, and they won a few battles. They won a lot of battles, ones they shouldn't have won. These elephants from Africa, and they, they brought into, into Italy... And Hannibal marched on Rome, and, and the Greek historian Strabo, whose writings are all lost, but there's some recollections of his writings that have been put down, and he, and he writes this. Hannibal, on, the side, on this side of Rome is Casilinum, situated on the river Volturnus. Here, 540 men sustained against Hannibal in the height of his power. So desperate a siege, Hannibal seized their city, surrounded it, and was starving them out. And, was about, and, and he actually did take the city. That by reason of the famine, a rat was sold for 200 drachma. A rat to eat. But Hannibal, observing some of them sowing turnip seeds near to the wall, admired them as well he might the patient courage of these men who hoped to hold out in the meanwhile until these turnips should be ready for food. These men were planting turnips. The city was about to fall. They were going to be destroyed. Hannibal was going to take them. 
and they're out there planting turnips. And Hannibal looked at that and, and, and knew this could be a problem. These people are defiantly, patiently, faithfully planning for the future. The city did fall. But a year later, it was taken back by the Romans. It became a strong Roman base. And they ate those turnips. They ate those turnips. Faithfully, patiently, even defiantly, in the face of all opposition, planting turnips. And I ask you, friends, are you willing to take the long view and to plant turnips, even if it doesn't look very hopeful, very happy? Are you willing to take the long view and plan for the victory God is going to give? Be patient. Be gentle. Be humble with one another and maintain the unity of the Spirit in this place. Before we leave this place, I just want to make sure that anybody who's come today, I don't want you to leave this place without knowing how much God loves you. God is patient. He's waiting. I saw Larry Erskine this week, and after I left, I kept thinking, I've been thinking all week about something he said. I saw him on Monday, and we were talking about the pain he continually to deal with and has to go through, and I was commenting on that. And you know what he said? He said, yeah, it's bad, but he said it's nothing compared to what Jesus went through for us. I don't want you to leave here today without knowing how much God loves you. Jesus died on the cross, paid for your sins, and invites you to receive forgiveness for sins and eternal life and be part of God's family. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do love us. And Lord, it's a privilege to serve you, to be, to be even given the opportunity to walk worthy of the calling you've given us, God. We do not deserve it. As a humble people today, we love you. And we thank you. We thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege of serving this congregation. And I thank you for the privilege of having Alice as part of our team. For that is what it is. It's a team, Lord. And the pastors and the office staff in this church, we can honestly say we work well together because we are a team. And we love each other. We support each other. We stand by each other. And Father, I just I want to thank you for giving Alice the privilege of serving in the ministry of the office of this church and continuing to serve in our ministry in our church family. Pray for your blessing upon her. Give her good health and strength to enjoy some of the things that she can enjoy now as she's retired, Lord. We look forward to serving you. We look forward to a time of refreshment. We ask your blessing on the food we're going to share. And it might just be a sweet time of fellowship as we share our thanks with Alice today. In Christ, our Savior's name, we ask these things. And all God's people say together, Amen. Amen. Give me just a moment, and we'll go out, Alice. And you can.